You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted we get to spend the next hour together on a statewide tour of the arts. Yes, this week we are once again heading out from Mid-Missouri to chat with four artists around the state who are the Missouri Arts Council's featured artists for the month of April. We'll be visiting a photographer in St. Louis, a painter in Darden Prairie, a multimedia artist in Kirksville, and a tuba player in Springfield. And with no time to waste, let's head out. First stop, St. Louis. Blackness in America is predominantly represented without nuance. The visual narratives we see of blackness are reductive, inaccurate, flat, and disproportionately negative. My next guest is a photographer who uses not only photography but also sculpture to document the many ways that black people produce and transmit knowledge and about the quiet, interior complexities of blackness. Jen Everett grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and has been based in St. Louis since 2004. Jen was a runner-up for the 2019 Museum of Contemporary Photography Chicago's Snyder Prize and one of 10 semi-finalists for the Contemporary Art Museum's St. Louis Great Rivers Biennial. Jen, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, there is so much to talk about with your work and 14 minutes cannot do it justice. But (laughs) let's start from the first line of your artist statement on the Missouri Art Council's featured artist page that even under the camera's relentless gaze, there are parts of us that remain inaccessible, unknowable and mysterious, which is true for everyone. But can you talk about why this is even more true when it comes to how Black people are photographed? Sure. Uh, One thing that I think about quite a bit is how we are inundated with images of Black people in, in protest or in excellence. And so this leaves not a lot of room for anything in between those two polar opposites or extreme. And I'm very interested in everything that is in between those, those extremes. So I'm my work. I'm interested in exploring the, the quiet moments, the interior moments, the everyday mundane things that make up a life. Well, you, clearly have a natural affinity with a camera's lens and and finding those quiet moments in people's lives. But when you were 36, with a well-established career as a project engineer, you decided it was time to go back to school and get your master's at Wash U in St. Louis. What prompted that decision to pursue the art through an academic lens? Yeah. <laughs> you've done you've done your homework. <laughs> so I always knew I was an artist and 
I don't think I had a model for how to make a living as an artist. And so I pursued undergraduate study in architecture because I thought, well, that's that's a way for me to express the creative impulses, but also have it be more practical and I can I can live off an, an architect's salary, but but art just wouldn't leave me alone. So I worked in in construction management for several years, but I really was not fulfilled in, in that uh, career. And it was also just very difficult as a woman in that field, as a black person, as a queer person. And if it was going to be such a fight, I wanted to be doing something that I felt that was my true calling where I could fully express myself and the stars sort of aligned and I was able to have the opportunity to pursue graduate study. How did pursuing graduate study change the how you wanted to create work? I don't know if it necessarily changed. It just provided really a formal structure for me to focus exclusively on making work. When you're outside of an institution or any sort of environment where you can dedicate your time, I mean, that that's the purpose. You're always juggling. You're always trying to something's going to suffer. So when I had a full-time job that required 50, 60 hours a week, I was depleted Mm. on many levels. And so I could not dedicate the time I wanted to to do the work. And and then the, the balance just continued to tip in favor of my art making practice. I began to Uh, go to residencies and be in conversation and dialogue with other artists. And so those experiences were really affirming. And I guess it, it showed me that it was possible for me to step away from the so-called safety of a full-time job in that, in that industry and say, well, you, you should try this because things keep happening here. Uh, And I did. And so there's the formal curriculum of the institution, but there's also the very informal way that that you're sharing and growing and exchanging uh, and, and not to negate the, the formal structure. But graduate school for me, since I did not study art uh, on the undergraduate level, I had to take a lot of art history and so the the craft component in in the graduate school or the, in the art structure it's the assumption is that you're coming from a studio art background in undergraduate study and so you've already taken those very craft based and um kind of formal classes where you hone in and then graduate study is more uh, in some ways, cerebral, at least the program I attended. And so you're focused on kind of honing in. So those years I spent going to residencies and trial and error and, and working independent of of an institution is where I began to hone kind of the craft. But 
it's it's ongoing. It continues. It can't be foreclosed just inside of uh, an academic structure. Well, let's talk about a couple of your bodies of work. Tell me a little bit about Inimitable Blackness, which looks at the nuances of black identity in America. Um, but it isn't it, it isn't flat work. It's structural, three dimensional photography. Can you describe that for us and, and what the prompt was for those works? Sure. So that was a pivotal moment for me in this kind of breakaway from just straight photography. So at the time, I was making a lot of portraits and some documentary photography. But I hit a point where that just wasn't, it wasn't doing enough. And I was getting, I was shooting digitally. So I was getting, I think, a little bit fatigued without some sort of uh, tactile or material component to the work. And so I began to make these photographs or portraits as the first step, but then sculpt them in a way that really harkens back to my architectural training and the model making and the things that I I think I was missing um, just by working with the hands and using using the hands to construct in a way. And so these are very angular geometric forms uh, kind of colliding with portraits. And what I was trying to get at is this aspect of not a flatness or a flat read or a quick read of an image that we're so used to doing because everything is is screen based mm. um these days and so we we tend to process images very quickly without a lot of slow looking and so when i would watch viewers or people who were interacting with my work the portrait, the flat portrait was a very, you know, they'd only spend two seconds looking at a, a portrait. But with one of these sculptural works, it was it was more of a, a slow looking. And that's what just on a basic level I was interested in. But then on a conceptual level, it's taking a deeper look at at black subjects and black subjectivity. Well, another body of work that I'd love to hear more about is, I think it's an ongoing series you have called Sons of Rest, which documents the black queer community in St. Louis. And you started that over a decade ago in 2010. And the photographs are a beautiful testament of love and friendship and the importance of safe black queer spaces. And over the last decade, which has really highlighted more than ever injustice and persecution and loss, when you look at these images, there's a kind of a sadness and a beauty, mm-hmm. kind of an elegiac nostalgia to them. So as you've been doing this for 10 years, how has that series changed over the past decade of social injustice? You know, it's it's interesting because that, that work started kind of by accident. I was interning actually at a, a magazine here, a queer publication and one of my assignments was to photograph Pride, STL Pride, the celebration uh, held in June over two or three days. And at that time, it was located in a park, Tower Grove Park. And so there was a just a certain quality and, and an intimacy, even with all the 
kind of drama that Pride brings and the corporate sponsorship uh, in the park and especially at this particular shelter called Sons of Rest or Shed, where the series gets its name, black folks would just gather and there was almost like this this apartness or this other space that was created outside of the larger and broader celebration. And while I was documenting pride in general, I would find myself drawn to this particular area of the park. And from that that first moment where I was photographing or that first Pride Festival, that, that was the end of the internship. But I kept going back in the subsequent years and, and documenting. And then people began to recognize me. And this was, this that series started around uh, maybe 2011, something, somewhere around there. And so there wasn't as many camera phones and smartphones. And so it was, it was really a, in, in ways or in thinking about the ways that it's changed and the nostalgia, it was that moment right before we kind of got absorbed in our phones. And so people were excited to see mm-hmm. me with a, ca- with a camera camera, as they say, <laughs> just there to, to document them and, and not document them from the position of an outsider, to document them um, from a perspective of I'm, we're, we're one and the same. And shortly after in subsequent years that that celebration pride got moved from the park to downtown St. Louis which I photographed a few times but it's almost like it's not the same it's not the same sentiment and it's just not the same sort of space that was at that particular shelter so I haven't I haven't made images that way in in quite some time and I think part of it is because just everything has changed now. Um, and I say the work is ongoing because I, I always want to leave it open that, that perhaps I'll go back to it in another way. But um, you're right, it, it is almost nostalgic because in some ways we can't ever go back to that time where we we're not engrossed in, in, in our phones and surveilling ourselves in that certain <laughs> way. And that just that excitement of, Ooh, someone's here to, to take my photograph. And it's, it's more of an act of love than it is of, of surveillance. I wonder as a photographer, when you take an image of someone in a public place, what sense of responsibility you feel as the person who captured that moment in their life and that you are responsible for that image's onward journey and what that means to you as a as a photographer. It's changed uh, over time. And I don't make images of people in, in public places the way that I used to. I did early on make uh, street photography, documentary photography, where there's not necessarily that level of consent. Now... And I think some of this is just my practice has evolved. And so I'm making other kinds of things, not just photographs. I'm still very, very interested in photographs and I appropriate and work with photographs, not necessarily ones that I take myself, but I'm just a lot more careful about 
how I work with images. And I want there to be a connection with someone whose photograph I'm making. And so I think that makes me pause a little bit. And I I honestly think now that I'm I'm speaking with you about this, some of it does have to do with, with the technology, the fact that it is so easy to circulate and put images of people out without their consent. I, I really have to consider, deeply consider, do I want to be a part of that and and just the the ramifications of that. Well, other than your website, is there anywhere that people can see your work in person over the next few months? So right now I have a collaborative project. It's not image-based, but it's with uh, a group called PSA. And that's currently up. It's a text-based work, and it's displayed on the exterior of the Contemporary Art Museum, St. Louis. Um, and that will be up through through May. And if you're in Norway, I have, I'm part of a, gr- a group <laughs> exhibition. Um, but that those are the only two places right now. Uh, and I know people are, at least if you're, if you're like I am, you're, you're craving the in-person, seeing art in person. I think we're all a little bit tired of, of screens. We're grateful for them, but yeah, we're, we're a little tired. We want to see some art in person. Well, to see Jen Everett's multiple bodies of work, you can check out Jen's website at jeneverettart.com. And that's Everett with a double T at the end. Or you can go to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, it has been a absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. Thank you. It is impossible to look at the artworks of painter Grant Niffin and not see the influence of Thomas Hart Benton. But mixed in with the sense of Benton are aspects of Cubism and other early 20th century modernist sensibilities, which all combine to a strong artistic voice that is demonstrably Grant Niffin. His works run the gamut from wildlife to westerns and landscapes to still lifes, but the sense of regionalism championed by Benton comes through in almost all his works. And you know that this is an artist intent on telling the story of the Midwest and the West. Grant lives in Darden Prairie near Wentzville, and I am delighted to have the chance to chat with him on this week's show. Good morning, Grant. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I think it is fascinating how you can see generations of artistic ancestors peeking through in the works of contemporary artists. And you can trace that DNA going back through generations of teacher and student interactions until you're back at Black Mountain College with Joseph and Annie Albers or at the Bauhaus or at Impressionism. And I see such strong strands of Thomas Hart Benton DNA in your work. But tell me, who else do you track your artistic DNA from? Wow, I've uh, that, that was a really nice introduction, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. You know, it, it, when I was a kid, I, I just all kinds of things. You know, I was in the comic books as a kid, wanted to be a comic book artist uh, at, at, at one time. But, you know, also had a great love of the, of the illustrators of the classic age, like Frank Schoonover and N.C. Wyeth. And those great illustrators that really in their works and the books that they illustrated were the special effects of their times. And so just really love that. And 
probably a real romantic bent that I that I tend to have, uh, you know, toward those things. And and, and so it, it was those many different things. And and a teacher that I had, he was a friend of my family, my my folks, and you know, he taught me more in in six weeks one summer than I learned in all my five years of college. And, and so it was this, this large blending. And so, yeah, I was always attracted to Benton and, and later on it was the color and the contrast and those artistic elements also that I found were so, were so powerful. And so, and then as a teacher teaching many years and, and, and teaching art history was when my work kind of turned from more regionalist to the blend of the early modernists and it kind of grew over time and more of this, more of that and so on. So when, when I look at your works, I feel like I'm seeing a, a moment in time that is part of a bigger story. Like each work is a snapshot from a movie reel. Talk to me about the stories that you want to tell through your art. You know, as I've said, narrative is, is really important. And so even though I combined a lot of these more modernist things, my, my work still that rooted in that regionalist, uh, story, the story of the people, and 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 really of those influences, and so, you know, I guess from people like N. C. Wyeth and so on, trying to capture a particular moment, and, and, and so it's just a story. And and what's interesting about stories is that, you know, we all come at it from different views and angles, and it touches people in different ways. And so, and so, you know, I love music. I love, you know, I was a big Western fans still am. And so just just those subjects. So I've always kept my subject and narrative, but I've done visually different things with it over time. I mean, part of that sense of snapshot that I get as a viewer is how you paint in a way that is so pregnant with movement about to happen. They're just these kind of like, feels like you've caught everything mid-second, whether someone's falling off a horse or playing an instrument. How do you get so much movement into a still painting? Well, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, you, you know, I, I would definitely say my stuff is not delicate and sensitive. And so I'm, I'm just not that way. I like spicy food. I like, you know, it's just, uh, that's just me. And so I, I, guess, I guess because I realized that I loved action and movement so much. And so how do I get it in? Well, really, you know, action and movement gets down to the kind of lines you use, the kind of shapes and the placement. And so really it's those formal elements of art. I'm just putting in story with it. And so diagonal lines, sharp contrasts of color, sharp contrasts of value, constant change, abruptness, and things such as that. And so that's that's what I apply. And And again, those are those formal elements that allow that to be done. Tell me a little bit about your process, how a work goes from an idea, like what inspires you? How does it go from your head to a finished acrylic painting? What what starts a work and what are the steps you go to to it being like, da-da, ready for the wall? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the process. Well, uh, my work always starts off with a drawing. And sometimes it may be a very loose sketch in a notebook, uh, you know, one of my paintings I did sitting watching a musical thing at a, a bar restaurant, but it starts with an idea and it just, you know, it kind of comes to you. You start messing around with your pen 
or pencil, and then, you know, things visually develop. You know, my, my work isn't, I don't know what you want to call it, real deep as far as some, you know, cosmic message for the universe or something like that. So anyhow, it starts with a drawing, and then I refine that drawing. And so before I ever paint, I have the composition pretty much figured out because otherwise you're just, you know, you're, you're struggling with the drawing aspects of it and not painting. And then I begin, I begin my painting. I do underpainting and then I, you know, start developing and building and, and, and it usually takes a long time because I got so many details and, and the way my work is, I got to keep my sharp edges. And so as a result of that, I often work with kind of a small brush and uh, and it takes a while, but uh, but that's just the way mine is. Are you when you're drawing onto the canvas or onto the undersurface? Are you doing everything from memory, or are you looking at images? Oh no, I I have references, and so my references are usually combinations from lots of different sources. Rarely do I do something from a, like a single reference. Well, it's always a little challenging talking about art on the radio because there are no visuals. But so that we can paint a little bit of an audio picture, let's talk about one of your works. And the one that I chose is the one called Barn Dance, which is on your website. And it's a vertical format painting, kind of tall and skinny, with a band in the in the background, 10 dancers in the midground, and a table of food in the foreground. Tell me a little bit about the background to that work, and then I have other questions about it. Sure. Well, uh, that, that piece was, uh, you know, it was a combination of things. Uh, the, the, the main figure, the real large one, was when we were visiting in North Carolina at some restaurant, uh, some barbecue joint there, there was cloggers there that night, and there was a guy dancing, and that, that always stuck in my mind. And it's interesting, when I drew that, my wife immediately said, that was that clogger guy, wasn't it? And so. And so, I I mean, I love bluegrass music, so just wanted to make a real fun composition. Now, you know, in art, art, there's all different periods and things, and, and, uh, you know, you've maybe heard art referred to as a postmodern concept. That's my most postmodern painting. And so I'm not just, I'm just not reproducing a scene or just the excitement, though that's what I try to draw people into. But then some people start realizing something's something's weird going on here. And so there's a lot of strange things that, that go on on purpose. And that's just having fun. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you next is one of the things that you like to do is you like to challenge viewers' expectations by creating these multiple perspectives yes. and drawing things out of whack. Why is that important to you? And why do you want to do that? Uh, what, what, what I'm trying to do is... I'm trying to take different thinking in different isms and time periods in art and ways of looking at it and applying it to my subject matter. And so one of the things was challenging viewers' assumptions about what they're seeing and how they're supposed to see it and what's happening in there couldn't be happening from the traditional one point of view that that, that subject's usually dealt with. I've seen your name listed on some of the bigger art fairs in Missouri. You show at the huge St. Louis Art Fair and the Plaza in Kansas City, which is giant. And both of them have hundreds and hundreds of applications from artists every year and are really difficult to get into. 
And I know a lot of artists struggle with art fairs because they are often naturally reserved and kind of shy people. And so suddenly to have all of these thousands of people viewing your work and asking you questions and wanting your attention can be a little overwhelming. What is your relationship with art fairs? Are you happy in that setting? I, I No, it just kind of energizes me. You know, I was a high school teacher. And so you had to teach people how to talk about their work and and all these various things. And so I, I love talking to people about my work. And so it just kind of energizes me. So so those those crowds are not bothersome uh, in, in that sense. Do you struggle to price your work? That's always difficult for a lot of people. You know, there's different people that have formulas and this and that. And I just kind of, you know, done it over time. And, you know, and, and, you know, you can ask whatever you want. That doesn't mean you're going to get it, uh, so to speak, as some have said. But, but on some others, I have been. And there's been things picking up. And I've actually had numbers of commissions, which I enjoy doing also. And so from these art fairs. And so you get connections and people like your work and, and so on. And so I'm really kind of new to art fairs, believe it or not. So before we close, tell me, what are you working on now? What's your big project at the moment? Well, actually, I just finished a big commission and uh, was actually got the frame earlier, to, or was ordering the frame earlier today uh, of a man's father and kind of multiple views of him. And, uh, and so he wants me to do another one of some other things, which is kind of neat. I'm working on a large, finishing a large landscape that I did of Zion National Park. And then I also have a owl painting that was a commission piece. And I'm, and I'm still working on that. You know, unfortunately with COVID, I haven't been as productive as I needed to be, even though there was time. Right. As, as probably many of us have struggled with. And then I have some ideas for some, for some newer ones, some more music ones. And because I, I love the work with the music and, and uh, even some Western themes and hopefully try to paint them smaller and get them ready for Kansas City. Well, you can see Grant's work or contact him directly via his website at niffenart.com. And that's K-N-I-F-F-E-N-Art.com. And you can also find a link via the Missouri Arts Council April Featured Artist page at missouriartscouncil.org. Grant, thank you so much for chatting today. Your work is fascinating. Well, thank you very much. It was an honor to be on your program. What does it mean to be human today? And what is our obligation to live responsibly to reduce our impact on all the other natural systems? And how can an artist explore and interpret those existential quandaries through their art? Well, my next guest aims to do just that. Laura Bigger is a multimedia artist and assistant professor of art at Truman State University in Kirksville, where she teaches printmaking, drawing and liberal studies courses. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Looking through your website, you are an artist that defies any kind of traditional categorization. You're a printmaker, a painter, a maker. You make hydroponic tables, a series of products made from raspberries, videos that explore a bison's field of vision. You've designed wallpaper, been commissioned to design a farm-to-table map. I mean, it goes on. How do you decide what to focus on? Oh, that's a great question. I do tend to extend myself uh, toward a lot of different directions at once and have ongoing projects that uh, I don't resolve. And then I hop around and come back to them. And 
sometimes at first glance, they seem disparate, but I think over time, there are these threads that I find that I come back to, or a lot of things relate to food, or some projects, maybe one-offs because I was approached to do a specific project on commission or something. But I am a dabbler and I really (laughs) like learning new things. And so I, yeah, I do tend to extend myself in a lot of different directions. Do you ever say no to things or do you just say yes and then work out how to do it? I am inclined to say yes to things, but I don't think I, at least since I've moved to Missouri, I don't think I've gotten asked to do that many things. Uh, But yeah, I did take on a colleague's poetry book cover, and that's really not my field, but it was a super fun project. Uh, And I took photographs for it, which also isn't my primary skill set at all. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's fun to do those things when you get asked. Well, clearly the natural world and the impact of our species upon it is central to your entire body of work. But in terms of the, gosh, the myriad burning questions and challenges that the world is facing right now, what keeps you awake at night and artistically motivated? I, I think that ever since I was little, I've had this feeling like, okay, I'm a human on this planet and I don't really know how I got here, but I'm here. And I have always wanted to be good in some way. And I I didn't grow up with any religion at all. And so I think that I was looking for a way to be a good person. And for me, that had to do with um, all the living things that were around me and the earth that I was living upon. And I didn't Uh, I felt very out of control with all of the things that happened up till the time of my existence. And so a lot of what my work is about, I think, comes back to that feeling that I've had ever since I was pretty little of wondering what I'm supposed to do or what I can do. And yeah, what's within my power. And some of that is just about learning because I feel like a lot of the things that surround us, we don't think very much about them. And I tried to be interested in where things came from and how they got to be in our possession or around us and what processes had to take place for them to be in that state. Um, And I'm sort of talking about raw materials. That's something I'm really interested in because I think there's a magic perhaps in the transformation of the materials as they come off the land or out of the ground to the point when we interact with them and that people have sort of forgotten or don't actually think very much about that. And so those are things that fascinate me and kind of concern me. And that's what keeps me motivated to make work, but also motivated to learn and uh, try to be a, a good person. Yeah. Well, you spent six months in New Zealand with an off-the-grid family who were leaders in a movement called the Transition Initiative. Can you talk a little bit about that movement and how it changed your art practice? Yes, that was really fundamental to me. Uh, I had come from this attitude that was a little bit hopeless, I would say, when I left college and went to live with this family. And 
through their leadership and reading the Transition Initiative Handbook and reading books on permaculture and things of this nature, I was inspired by their can-do attitude. And the family I lived with had this thing they would talk to their kids about where they would talk about balancing quality of life. And so they tried to tread lightly on the earth and make a lot of ethical decisions, but they were also considering their quality of life as something that would hang in the balance with those other things. And they also didn't allow... Uh, let's say there was something that you just felt like you couldn't change or you didn't know how to change or it was too big. That didn't mean that you couldn't change in a smaller area. And so their outlook was really influential to me. And so when I got back to the United States and I went to graduate school, I made a conscious choice to try to switch my making practice to be more uh, constructive is the way I framed it. So I would ask myself, is this constructive for me to make emotionally or is it constructive in some other way uh, in regard to what outlook it has about something or what it might bring to someone else? And so, yeah, that's that's kind of how I think about it. But just trying to take a positive angle instead of a negative, pessimistic angle. What was your work like before you went to New Zealand? It was fairly broody, kind of abstracted landscapes without any humans in them. And the attitude I was coming from when I was making them was fairly depressive, I would say. And thinking about how the landscape would be better without humanity. And then... I think that I became more pragmatic and just thought, okay, well, we're here. So let's think about this a little bit differently moving forward. Well, I mean, we live in such a polarized world divided between believers and non-believers in almost every sphere down to, I don't know, whether you are pro or anti the Australian yeast-based Vegemite spread. So when you address these weighty issues of our obligations to live responsibly and our effect on the planet's ecosystem – How do you keep non-believers engaged with your work and avoid being artistically preachy? Because I'm guessing it's kind of a fine line. Yeah, I am not interested in proselytizing very much either. And that puts me in a tough spot because I don't want my work to immediately turn someone off from it. And I try to take an approach that has more reverence to it. And so it's saying, I have a lot of care and fascination and interest in these things, and I'm going to depict them with care. And then hopefully you'll be interested in looking at what I make, and then maybe you'll be curious about the meaning behind it. And that might just be an entry point into this subject or just a different way to think about something. And so it's pretty gentle in its approach. And it might just as much be for me, because I learn through the process of some of the works that I make. For example, in the Elements series, I tend to do research about different raw materials. And so some of that is a learning process for me. And it satisfies my need 
to be aware of what is around me. Well, you mentioned the body of work elements, which is one of the ones that I wanted to ask you about, because I found it very compelling about how we take items out of the earth. Talk a little bit about that display or that exhibit. So it is a series of wall-based works primarily that have an arched top and they're framed in an arched frame that's custom to the piece. And below each drawing or two-dimensional work, there is a small floating shelf made out of walnut that has a recess in it. And in the recess, there will be a a raw material. So let's say it's coal, like a little chunk of coal. Then the drawing above it is about that raw material. And the drawings vary quite a bit in technique and in the sort of in the way the compositions are framed. Some of them are these stacked landscapes that have strata with different meaning. So the coal one, for example, has the geologic timescale somewhat embedded into the landscape vertically with the formation of the rich vegetative landscape at the bottom. And then it's it has a coal mountaintop removal landscape over the top of it. And then it has layers of sparkly rain over the top meant to represent acid rain. And it also is enclosed a little bit on the sides by an orange layer that's printed over the top of it. And that is also meant to be a little bit of lateral pressure that is representing global warming for me. So each piece will take a narrative of a raw material and then also have this literal component of the object. And they're somewhat altar-like. And so I think in that sense, I was talking about reverence. And there's a reverent quality to the works. They're fairly small but detailed. And so you come up to them and there's a lot to look at in these little pieces. And so the piece or the series isn't complete. I have, I think it's 11 of the drawings are made. And I have this list of about 30 And I've been chipping away at them. Um, And I have also been making some sculptures, but those also aren't complete. So they don't quite make up a full exhibition. But my original concept was actually to create a floor plan within a large gallery space. This is sort of my someday. Someday (laughs) I hope to do this, to make a layout of, you know, a floor plan of a home and then to place the drawings in relation to the spaces because I've sort of also isolated different rooms in the home for their different purposes and thinking about, for example, just the bathroom would be this space for bathing and for certain bodily processes, whereas the bedroom tends to be about warmth and sleeping. Um, And so I'm thinking more about fibers that we use. And then Crude oil is one that, it was the first piece I made, and that's because I think of crude oil as this stand-in for plastics, but also for everything that, all of the fuel that is needed to produce these objects or to turn them into the 
the state that we use them or to transport them. There's so much crude oil involved. And so I felt like I had to do that piece first. But I've just been chipping away at this project since about 2016. So when you have a project like this, and it is a display where all the components are needed together, I mean, can you ever sell anything or does it live in perpetuity as a, as a work that a museum would acquire? It can't really be broken up in any way. Yeah, that's true. I do not want to sell them individually. And so I'm just hoarding them and trying to accumulate them until they're all there. Yeah, that would be awesome if a museum wants to acquire this eventually. But yeah, that it's not very pragmatic. But thankfully, I'm a professor. And so I don't need to sell these works to make a living. And that gives me a lot of freedom. And in some ways, they're more beneficial to me as Uh, work that I can continue to show. Well, you can see Laura Bigger's extensive body of work on her website at laurabigger.com. And Laura, thank you so much for telling us more about your work and for highlighting so many crucial issues through your art. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Tuba is Latin for trumpet. I did not know that, nor did I know that the main tube of a B-flat tuba is a staggering 18 feet long, and that the original patent, incidentally for a tuba in the key of F, which is only 12 feet long, was granted in 1835. Generally, an orchestra will have a single tuba functioning as the base of the brass section, and although composers such as Strauss, Gershwin, Holst and Brahms have included influential parts for the tuba, and the instrument has long been part of jazz, ensembles, it is rare for the tuba to be the lead instrument. But Springfield-based tubist Ralph Heppeler is one of a small handful of tuba players who has released an album where the tuba is front and central. His album, concisely titled Tuba, was released in January 2020, and he is here to tell us more about his history with and passion for the tuba. Good morning, Ralph. Morning, Diana. So the tuba is a fascinating instrument in that it provides this incredibly resonant bass that is vital to an orchestra. It adds richness to any jazz ensemble. Its counterpart, the sousaphone, keeps the time for marching bands. And yet, with rare exception, does it get to enjoy the spotlight? What are some of the misconceptions about the tuba that you would like to correct through your music? Well, the idea that it cannot be a solo instrument. Uh, It can be a solo instrument, and there are many fine tuba players around the world now, most of them classical players, but there are a lot of uh, solo tuba players. In fact, I'm part of the International Tuba Euphonium Association, and every other year we have an international conference. This year they're going virtual. So May 29th to June 2nd, I'm going to be performing as a part of the After Hours series on that. But there are tuba players from all over the whole world are going to be playing as soloists on that. So, yeah, it definitely can be a solo instrument. There aren't that many solo tuba players in jazz. Uh, Of course, we're used in traditional jazz, like the music from New Orleans and Tin Pan Alley and the really old jazz. And I've done a lot of that playing where you're playing the bass part. But what I do now with contemporary jazz is I play as the lead horn, the, the lead instrument in a group with piano, bass and drums. So I understand that you started out playing piano until at the age of 12, you picked up one of the largest and heaviest instruments and decided to change course. What was your 12-year-old thought process? Because it seems like there must have been easier ways to get into marching band. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, um, it was the band director, a wonderful woman. And um, she, I, I started for some reason a little bit later than the other kids, a few months later. And the other kids had already picked their instruments, and they had plenty of trumpet players. I really <laughs> wanted to be a trumpet player. And, of course, the trumpet is very popular. It's it's even popular even today with all the guitars and drums and keyboards that we have now. Trumpet is still quite popular. It's uh, probably the most popular brass instrument. I wanted to be a trumpet player. And um, she was very clever. She said, if you start out on the tuba in a few months, <laughs> uh, if you get good enough, I'll let you switch over to the trumpet. And in a matter of a few days, I had fallen in love with the tuba, and I, I kind of had this idea that if I was a really good tuba player, I'd probably get more opportunities because I saw that, you know, other kids had taken up the trumpet and the flute and the drums, and they're really popular instruments. So I just decided to go with one that's less popular. So with so many feet of tubing, it seems like you need a mighty pair of lungs to push any sound out at all, which when you are 12 must have been an even mightier task. Is there... Is there a tuba equivalent of like training wheels <laughs> to get you going? How do you make that first sound? Well, I did start on a smaller tuba at the beginning, but well, I've I, I'm relatively tall, and your lungs are tall inside of your body, so it's really tall people who have the biggest lungs, like professional basketball players and Olympic runners, and that they tend to be taller people. So you don't really put the air under a lot of pressure when you play the tuba. You use large volumes of air, but you don't put it under a lot of pressure. And um, I'll just say it as an aside that I did my music degree at Northwestern University, north of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois. And I went there because it's a vastly underrated music school, but also because they had Arnold Jacobs on their faculty. And Mr. Jacobs played for 44 years in the Chicago Symphony as the principal tuba player. He was a huge influence on me. And you asked about the use of air. He used to say you can never have too much air for tuba playing. And that is really true. Every time I take a breath, I take a capacity breath. And um, that's just how you have to play the tuba. You know, you just get used to taking capacity breaths all the time. We don't put the air under a lot of pressure, but we do take a huge breath every time we start to play. And um, then don't bear down or force very much. I wonder if there's any comparisons done between a tuba player's lung capacity and that of like a free diver or a mountain cyclist. Are there any stats on how much extra capacity a tuba player has in their lungs? Well, you actually can't change your lung capacity. And we all peak around age 21 in terms of our our capacity. Hmm. Well, after picking up the tuba and making it your instrument, while still a teenager, you won a position in the U.S. Army Band of Washington, D.C. You won a full scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music. As you said, you got your music degree at Northwestern. And you spent five years in Europe playing in Switzerland with the Basel Symphony Orchestra. And you played also at the Salzburg Music Festival, followed by freelancing gigs in New York City and in Minnesota. And you played in both classical and jazz ensembles. Plus, you have played performances of 70 three different operas in 98 productions. So with so many incredible highlights in your tuba career, is there one that stands out for you? 
Well, these last two years of really focusing on improvising, I feel like this is kind of the culmination of my creative life. I've always been fascinated with improvising, and um, I did it early on, not not as much as I do now, but I, I just really feel what I'm doing now, it's the peak for me, and uh you know, as an individual, I'm not saying that I'm famous or anything like that. I'm just saying that I, I, I write a lot of music now. I, I work on improvisation every day. I just work on developing my improvisational skills. So I really feel like the, the last couple of years, not needing to, uh, you know, wait for the phone to call for the next freelance job has been a real, real freeing kind of thing. What was the prompt? Why decide after all this time that you're going to now focus exclusively on improvising on the tuba and really and make your instrument front and center and not wait for the gigs any longer? What prompted that change? Well, financial independence. <laughs> I uh, got to the point where I don't need to work those kind of jobs anymore. And um, two years ago, my wife wanted to move to a warmer part of the country. So we moved 600 miles south here to Springfield, Missouri. Uh, we didn't want to have two homes like one in the Sun Belt where it gets incredibly hot in the summer. So we kind of split the difference and, and came to Springfield. So you released your new album last year entitled Tuba. Tell us a little bit about the album and what songs you included in it. Well, it's all original music. I was living in St. Paul and I made it with Minneapolis-St. Paul musicians. It's a lot of different styles, like the first track, Roots and Wings, is really a fusion piece. Then I've got Clarion Call, which is kind of a Latin jazz number based on a song by a famous trumpet player, Kenny Dorham. And his, his tune was called Blue Bassa, but I, we, we slowed the tempo down and I wrote a new melody and it's called Clarion Call. Then I've got a fast fusion tune called Hepmobile. I like to say it's a solo vehicle for tuba, Hepmobile. <laughs> and, you know, a, a slow, moody kind of ballad called Blue Moment. I've got a bebop tune where I play many choruses back to back called Phraseology. I've got a couple of blues kind of tunes with an excellent guitar player called Ralph's Riff and Through the Ringer, and then an a old-fashioned Hammond B3 organ blues called Incoming Blues. Then we do three actually Celtic airs that are just beautiful melodies, and I adapted them for the tuba and uh, digital keyboard. And then the last tune is kind of a almost a rock tune. It's called American Landscape. And were your plans for the album's debut year thwarted somewhat by the pandemic? Had you planned to tour with the album and had to put all that on hold? Well, yeah, I think everybody's been thwarted by the yes. pandemic. <laughs> this has been terrible. I can't wait till it's over. Yes, I, and everybody that I've approached has said, you know, we have a pandemic. We're just not booking. We're closed. We're temporarily closed. You know, it's just all, all of that stuff. So, yes, I'm really eager for this to be over and, and for things to get back to normal. I do have a few uh, things coming up. I don't know if you want to hear about that. Sure. But I've played for First Friday Art Walk here in Springfield, and I'm going to be doing that uh, First Friday in May and probably other months this summer. I think they'll ask me to play again. And um, I just made two videos with um, actually a, a couple of guys who teach at Missouri State University. Uh, keyboardist Kyle Aho and drummer Marty Morrison, along with a young bass player named David Dove. And we recorded the old jazz ballad, Body and Soul, uh, from 1930. And then uh, fast fusion tune that I wrote called This Goes Like This. So I've got that coming up. 
And then I, I have a Wednesday's noon in Founders Park concert at Founders Park where the city of Springfield was founded. And um, I'm going to be doing that with the same guys that I made the videos with, the two guys from Missouri State University, Kyle Aho and Marty Morrison, with bass player David Dove. And then we're going into Studio 2100 here in Springfield again to record. And then I'm also going to be going to Denton, Texas in October for their Arts and Jazz Festival. Perfect. Well, let's go out with a clip of music from your album. Would you introduce the track for us and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this is Roots and Wings. I wrote it with a keyboard player, uh, Minneapolis keyboard player, Peter Shu, who's actually from Hong Kong. It's kind of a fusion tune. It's a medium tempo with the electric bass, drum set, uh, synthesizer, and tuba. And I think it turned out really well. A lot of people uh, have enjoyed it and made, made nice comments about it. So this is Roots and Wings from my album called Tuba. was Roots and Wings from Ralph Happler's new album, Tuba. You can listen to Ralph's album on Bandcamp and you can also listen to a ton of his music on his website at ralphheppler.com. Ralph, thank you so much for the fascinating musical journey and, and good luck with the album. Thank you, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm 
Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, Jen Everett, Grant Niffen, Laura Bigger and Ralph Heppler. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of Yasmin's music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Mid-Missouri. Mid-Missouri.